We are taking a break uh, from the book of Second Peter. If you've been with us you, uh, in here or out in the pavilion or live stream, uh, you, you'll know that we've been going through the book of Second Peter. And um, I, I just felt there's been a message that's kind of been stirring in my heart and, and mind for several weeks now, if not months. And so I, I uh, wanted to, to, to pause because uh, I think it's important to pause and to look at a different text this morning. So we will be in the book of Ephesians. But I want to start by asking you this question. And that is this. What is it that defines you? Um, as, as I know uh, most of you in here in this room, um, I can look around this room and uh, on the back row see some really good soccer players back there and a, a good little baseball player. And uh, I can look around and say, hey, there's a pretty good B honey beekeeper in the back row. Kids are in here, parents, grandparents. A lot of things can define us, and we can use a lot of things to define us. And I really want to ask the question this morning and start to engage our minds to really start to ask, who are you? What defines you? Today, as we look at this text... As we look at the book of Ephesians, if we were to start in the beginning, we're going to jump into the middle of the first chapter. But if we were to start in the beginning, we would see that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he is reminding these people, he is telling these people who they are. And in fact, if if verse 3 through 14 is one long sentence in Greek, and it tells us that uh, the, the people that he is writing to, that they are elect, They are redeemed. They are certainly loved. Uh, They have an inheritance and they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And I want to say something that you may say is kind of like, well, Lewis, that's common sense. But there are some things I really would like to sink in to our psyche this morning. What should define us as Christians should be our relationship to God and our relationship to His Son, and what God and His Son say about us. That is the most defining thing about us, should be the most defining thing about us as Christians. He has adopted us. We are His children. Uh, he, he says that we are His bride as the church. And if we were to look ahead in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we're His workmanship, that we've been created in Christ Jesus for a work that He had prepared for us beforehand. We are His people. We, we can't talk about the definition or what should define us as a Christian without talking about God and His Son as the ultimate authority that defines who we are. And what we would see if we read this whole letter is that not only does it tell us how we are defined, but as it goes through, it becomes evident that because of who we are, we have a work to do. We have a purpose. The reason this chapter, these verses um, became so... Prevalent to me over the past couple weeks is that I have a problem. (laughs) I want to say, and I want to, I want you to hear me closely here because I'm going to walk a tightrope all morning. 
So I want you to really listen. I believe that the church has lost its way during this election cycle. As a pastor, one of the things that has just been burdened on my heart as I hear people talk, how people talk, the response to certain things, that I feel like we have lost our way during this election cycle. I have seen pastors and Christians that that live in such a way that it seems what is more important, the most important thing about them, the defining thing about them is whether or not they're a Republican or a Democrat. And and that the, the, the idea that we are God's people, that we are His church, that we are His bride, and that He is the most important thing, I think has taken a turn. And I think it's clear that there's this tendency for us to turn politics into an idol in our life. And so this morning, I feel like this message is is really important. Um, Gary sent me a text message. He knew what I was preaching on, and he sent me a link to something that John Stone Street uh, uh, said, and he was referencing C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Have you read this book? This book is uh, C.S. Lewis very creatively uh, writes this uh, book to where uh, he's pretending to be an older demon talking to a younger demon about how to hold this Christian Captive, and so it's really, um, it's really cleverly done. And and in one chapter, C.S. Lewis, uh, the, uh, you know, writing through this demon is urging the the older demon is urging the younger demon, um, listen, lure him away, lure him away with politics, with a partisan spirit. Help him to see that religion is just a merely a a part of the cause. That the value of Christianity is chiefly because it has some arguments arguments that can produce a political purpose. That in other words, what gets turned upside down is that instead of being a Christian, and that our theology, and that our doctrine inform our politics, and that that's the main thing, is who God is and who we are in relation to Him, Turn it on its head. Turn it on its head. Now, I want to make some things crystal clear as I'm talking this morning. Uh, This outline was done before Tuesday. Now, the significance of Tuesday was we were supposed to know who won the election. But we don't. I, I don't know if we know now fully or not. Whatever. The point is, is that this outline was written before the outcome of the election because I didn't want anybody to uh, sniff around any bias in this sermon because I want to be an equal opportunity offender this morning. And when I speak of the church this morning, I'm not necessarily narrowing in on Single Mountain Bible Church. I'm talking about the, the church, the bride of Christ in America. And when I'm talking about politics, I'm talking about both sides. And this is really big for me. It is good and right that Christians are involved in the political process and that Christians uh, vote and stand for truth. This election has, will have major consequences. There is truth that Christians should stand for. So don't hear me wrong. 
we also should believe that, the, that we have a corner, the, the market on the truth, because we have the revealed will of God in the Scriptures, and so we have something to stand on, and it would actually be unloving for us not to proclaim that truth in culture. Because we would be standing back and standing silent as culture goes awry. So, so hear me clear. Christians should be involved. We do have truth. However, however, one of the things that I think is a shame is this. I think Christians should be uncomfortable in a political party. I don't think, if we're truly thinking biblically, if we're truly thinking according to God's Word, that just engulfing yourself in a... There are things about each political party that should drive you bananas as a Christian. The problem that I've seen in our culture and in our day and age, and, and this is a major issue, is that I think that the political party is informing our theology. And so that we stand in a political party, we're told what to think, and then even as God's Word comes in, that we, we are rejecting certain things. I have entered into conversations, and I'm not going to tell you the issues that I was talking about so that you won't call me names, but I've been called names, not bad, curse words, but I've been labeled in, in ways uh, because I was just asking questions to people about certain issues. What saddens me is the inability of Christians to criticize political parties biblically. My prayer this morning, my prayer this morning is that God would open our eyes, that we would see the power that He has given us as His church, and that as His church who has given this power, that we would leave here reinvigorated for the purpose that we have in this world and in our culture. Now, as we open this text this morning and we look, we are dropping in in the, in the middle of, uh, of a section. And starting in verse 15, Paul is praying a prayer. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith, uh, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So what Paul is saying is that I have heard of your faith, I have seen the genuineness of your faith, and that is true, and that I do not cease in praying for you. And look at what he is praying for them. In verse 17 and 18, he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And these are wonderful. This is a wonderful prayer. And it's over the next couple of verses that I want to hover this morning. Look at verse 19. As he's praying for them, he's praying that they would know that the power that they have. Look at verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power? This is God's power. That we would know the surpassing greatness of God's power towards us who believe. So the God of the universe has this great power and it is towards those of us who believe. And these are in accordance with the working of His strength and His might. That the God of the universe, in His strength and in His might, 
His power is being, uh, is being moved towards us who believe. And this should absolutely blow our minds. Paul now talks about how powerful this power is. Notice this in verse 20. He says, this power towards us, which he, the same power which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. There is nothing, there is no power that is so great Only God possesses the power to be able to raise Jesus from the dead. But notice Paul doesn't stop there. Because not only did he raise Jesus from the dead, but he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so what we're supposed to be hearing and seeing as we look at this text, and as we look at uh, this power of God, Paul is drawing our attention to the power that is towards us, that is displayed in Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice three things about the next three verses. First of all, notice in verse 21, this power, Christ, is seated at the right hand above all. And notice in verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is way more powerful than Biden or Trump. Jesus Christ and His kingdom is way more powerful than any power of the United States of America or Russia or China or North Korea. Christ rules above all. Above all. And I love this building. The second thing that I want you to see is in verse 22. So He rules above all. Every name that is named, Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things, all things are in subjection under his feet. And he gave him head over all things. Christ is the ruler over all things. Whether people or countries or things admit it or not, Christ is the sovereign king of all. And what's way more important about our Lord, He is over all things. The Democrats and Republicans are in subjection to Him. But what's way more important than that is that Satan and sin and death is in subjection to our King. Jesus rules over sin and death. This is our King. And then notice, that, so it's talking about he's far above. All things are in subjection to him. And then notice in verse 22 and 23. And he gave him the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this is mind blowing to me. So as we define ourselves as believers, we are, we are his body. We are the church. He is our head. And this is the most, this is the, this is what should define us. And and think about it. Think about it. In in this day and age, if, if, if you were to go somewhere, and for those of you who are not sports fans, then I'm sorry for this illustration. Um, But if you were to go somewhere and to say that you are an Alabama football player, you're going to be looked at as, whoa, you're a part of that machine, that dynasty. How much more as the church, as the people of Jesus Christ, should we stand in the power of Christ 
because He is our head and He is directing that power to us for a purpose and a mission in this world. We are ambassadors of His kingdom. The rest of Ephesians is about walking out or living out who we are, that we are His and that we stand in confidence as His children. We are the children of the all-powerful King of the universe and He's our Father and we have a mission. Even the term Christian, when the word Christian was first used, it meant little Christ and it was meant as a derogatory term. But I love this term. Because it should be who we are, that we are reflections of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We should radiate Jesus to the world. We should be salt and we should be light. We should be a people who, who go to hard places, who, who are sending our kids and, 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 and ourselves on the mission field because there are people that don't know who Jesus is and He has the power to save them. We should be a people that talk about Jesus, that talk about the hope that is in Him, the hope that the world can find in Him because we are His people. And this is what He wants for us to do. We should be building up one another. We should be building up the church. Our mission statement should be the mission statement of every church, and in some ways it is. Most churches, good Bible-believing churches I go into, have some version of our mission statement, which is to know Christ and make Him known. This is who we are as Christians. One of the paradoxes that I've lived over the past couple of months, a couple of weeks ago, I was with one of the missionaries we support, Tim Roberts. And Tim and his wife uh, spent 26 years in the uh, mountains of Mexico into a people group who didn't even have a written language, had never heard of Jesus Christ. And they spent 26 years to these people sharing the love of Christ with them and proclaiming the good news to an unreached people group. And I was with him at a... a, a, a a little thing, and the juxtaposition I was in is that uh, my plane was delayed, and so I had to spend an extra day in Pennsylvania, and this was the night of the um, uh, debates. And so I had spent this this whole day hearing about Ethnos 360, what used to be New Tribe Ministries, and, and what they were doing, and their passion to reach the lost, and their passion to send people, and their passion to send kids and educate kids about the need for evangelism in the world to these unreached people groups, these hard places. And then I turn on the TV and listen to the debates. And it was disheartening a little bit to me. Because I was, I was sitting with these missionaries and these uh, former missionaries. I mean, the, these are my heroes in the faith. And it revealed to me just this problem that I think that is going on in our day and age And that's this, is that this political cycle has been used by Satan to distract us, to distract the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I want you to, some, a pastor, and I don't know who it was now, but a long time ago I got this definition of idols, that when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes an idol. Right? When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a God idol. And that can be... Family relationships, that can be sports, that can be whatever. Politics in and of itself isn't a bad thing. In fact, there's a lot of good. We should be involved. We should be engaged. There's a lot at stake. But I think what I have seen in the past couple of months is that the church 
has been carried away in some fanaticism and politics have become an idol and we have lost our way. You know, I, I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if, if, a, if an article in the paper came out today that said there is a, um, this deep state, deep state conspiracy, these people controlling... I wouldn't be surprised. If there an article came out today that said that both candidates had told uh, 90% lies their whole time, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, uh, if it came out that both candidates had used their political offices to gain personal gain. wouldn't be surprised. You know why? They're sinners. They're sinners. Corrupt men act corruptly. And our world, without Christ, we are in a fallen state and we are corrupt. And we will act corruptly. I am also not rattled to the core uh, about the results of election because Trump or Biden, neither one of those guys is where my hope lies. This is great. My Savior is just. My Savior always speaks the truth. My Savior both speaks truth and loves radically. And guess what? My Savior always wins. It's never in doubt. Church. (laughs) Church. Let's know who we are. If we could see Christ as our King, if we, could, if we could reorient ourselves around who we are, our anxieties would be different right now. Now, there is a danger. There is a danger. I, I think there's great danger with the far left and the far left's agenda. There is great danger there. There is great danger, the far right and its agenda, there's great danger there. And so to to be sold out on either one of those places, great danger. But I tell you what's not dangerous is to be sold out for Christ. It may cost you your life and all your stuff, but being radically Christ-centered is who we are created to be. Now hear me again. I hope you hear me say this over and over, that there are some major issues at stake in this election and that we should be involved and that we should uh, vote and that we should stand on truth and that we shouldn't be unloving. We, in fact, it would be unloving to be silent, right? It would be unloving to be silent on matters of truth. However, I want to tell you part of where I think this message has come from is a jealousy. As a pastor over the past couple of weeks and months, I am jealous about the fervor and frenzy that I have noticed that Christians have over politics. I was getting my hair cut the other day, and just it was just a—I mean, it was just like it was what's supposed to happen. So, what do you think about the political cycle? I have never been getting my hair cut by a stranger, and somebody say, "What do you think about the King of the Universe?" I don't know when the last time that I saw somebody 
I know I shouldn't say this, with a huge flag that said, Jesus reigns. I've heard more Christians in the workplace and in various places defending their political side, their political person than ever. And, and I'm jealous because I've rarely heard, as I've been going out throughout my day in workplaces and in various places, people defending the gospel and proclaiming the truth of Christ in hopes to, to, to win sinners over. The, the other thing that I've probably been jealous about is the emotion and fervor that I've seen surrounding these elections. That the passion that has been created for these earthly leaders. And then on Sunday mornings, there's not near that passion. For the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who has rescued us out of the domain of darkness and brought us into the family of light. I, I, I am jealous in this political season that I've seen so much anxiety over who might become president, and I wish that we had that kind of anxiety that revival would break out across our land. Can you imagine that? If we had the same angst that God would bring revival as we do, that a political candidate would be elected. Um, one of our elders, Damon, had given our elders a book um, about revival, a no little notebook in... Um, uh, by a guy named T.M. Moore, and one of the elders uh, screenshotted me something this week, and I want to read it to you. And I know reading's not good to do in the service, but I want to read this to you. It says, We will not turn to God for revival so long as we believe our best hope for improving moral and social conditions and preserving our religious liberty lies in political activism. Politics is a huge distraction in a day when revival is sorely needed. It dominates our attention and conversation. And it leads people to thinking that the only real solutions to whatever ails us must come from political sources. Christians who know almost nothing about the history of revival seem to believe that only politicians have the power to improve social and moral conditions. Most of us do not believe that societies can be changed, morals improved, culture renewed, and multitudes can come to saving faith in a season of revival. So rather than seek the Lord for revival, we seek political solution to our ills and wonder why nothing much ever changes. Politics matters, of course. And when revival breaks out, even politics and politicians experience the shaping and moving hand of the Lord. And I wonder if in the past month, if the way the church hasn't said that revival would break out across the land would be a colored wave. Verses. A God who is above it all, coming and meeting with us. Christians, we also have an opportunity, and I hope we haven't squandered an opportunity. Um, I'm on the board of a little Christian school, and the board members have been asked uh, this month to provide the devotions, and I was the one who got to kick it off. We recorded these videos, and it's on the fruit of the Spirit and one of the things as I was recording, trying to talk to kindergarten through fifth graders about the fruit of the Spirit, introducing that, which is harder than what it may sound. I have much respect for Ruby and, and what she does here. 
But as I was trying to think through that and do that, one of the things that just caught me as I was, as I was recording this message is that has the church in this political season demonstrated the fruits of the Spirit as we have engaged on the political scene? Has the church been seen as loving, kind, long-suffering, self-controlled, I know I'm mixing up things there. Self-controlled. Has the church reflected its Savior? Which one? Has our tone been anger and division? Or has our tone been one of hope because our hope lies not in a person on this earth, but the person of Jesus Christ? And so I ask you, In this political season, what kind of loser are you going to be? One of the things that has bothered me to no end is this horrific notion that if you don't vote a certain way, that you're handcuffing God. This has bothered me to no end. Of course go vote. God may be using that means to do something. I'm not, again, important issues... Do it, go, be active. But it drives me nuts to think that we can be a people of the Word and we can know the Word and we will have read this Word and then we come back and think that we've got to somehow help God out by casting a vote a certain way. When we read the Old Testament, kings come, kings go. And God uses kings for certain purposes and in certain ways. And we are foolish not to think that God is not up to something in our day and age. It might be judgment. When I look at both candidates, that's my conclusion. To be honest with you. But how dare us to find our hope there and our peace there. And, not, and to think that we've got to help God out to, to push Him over the edge. Uh, the, the other side, what kind of winner are you going to be? Are you going to boast in your candidate? Or are we going to be a people who boast in Christ alone? The reality is, the reality is, and this may depress some of you, but the reality is, is that we live, most Christian thinkers, if you listen to them who have their hand on the pulse of culture will tell you this, that we are living in a post-Christian culture. That the collective thought and the collective morals and the collective values that in in America, that it is increasingly post-Christian. There was a day and age, believe this or not, teenagers, um, there was a day and age that where if you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't get elected to any office. In fact, you had to be a certain type of Christian sometimes to get elected to office. In our day and age, that's not the case. And in fact, when we look at culture, when we look at politics, when we look at what's going on uh, at the national level, now being being a Christian is really a liability. I've got good news for you. Some of you may be like, oh no, I've got good news to you. The New Testament was written to a group of people who were in the minority in their culture. It tells us how we suffer. It tells us how we live in a culture that is increasingly pagan. Now, I hope and pray that there is a revival and that something changes in our land and things are different. But, but, we as Christians, as, a, as God's bride, as Christ's body, 
have to realize the position we're in, and that position isn't a place of doom and gloom. That is in a position of power because we are the church. The church may not win elections, but we have won. I'm not saying that we give up. I'm not saying that we stop being engaged in the political process, but I'm just saying that we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. It shouldn't knock us off of our um, center of gravity. Now, um, I want you to hear me here. Um, This first statement is very important to me because I believe it with, with all that's in me. I am so thankful for the United States of America. I still get chills when I talk to veterans. I was in the airport in Pennsylvania and saw a World War II veteran being wheeled throughout the airport. And what an amazing thing. What an amazing sacrifice. I, I love this country. This country, because of this country, the gospel has gone out to many places in the world because of the prosperity of this country, because of God's um, pouring out His blessings upon us. The church has grown and some really great, wonderful things have happened. But I worry, I worry at times that the Christian church in America, that patriotism has become our first love. You see, Paul, as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, we get this letter. But is this the last time this church shows up in the New Testament? If you know your Bibles, John, as he's writing the book of Revelation... Do you remember that he, when he's writing to the seven churches, he writes to the church at Ephesus. And one of the things that he commends them for is that they stood on the truth. I mean, it is clear what he tells them. He says, you have stood against false doctrine. Well done. He even names heresy that they stood against. You are right. You have stood for the truth. You've stood, against, you've stood up for what is right. And so here's the interactive time. If you're at home, you can have interactive time and... Uh, make fun of your spouse or kids if they're wrong. What, was, what is God's critique of the church at Ephesus? So you have forgotten what? Your first love. Let this sink in. You can stand for truth. You can stand for what's right And God can still have this against you that you have lost your first love. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, I hope and pray that in our day and age and that in your life, that our first love, Christ, His glory, His kingdom, reigns supreme in your heart and in your life. And that is what defines you. Being an American, being a Republican, being a Democrat, being whatever is a far, I hope, third or fourth. I hope a parent and a spouse is above those things. But my fear is that Satan has taken this shiny thing and distracted us and has led us astray and that what the church needs, and this is a great time for us to be recentered, what the church needs is to realize Whose we are. We are the children of the sovereign king of the universe. We are his church. Let's be that way.
Let's stand for truth in this culture. Let's evangelize. Let's proclaim the name of Jesus. Let's stand for biblical principles. Let's do this out of love as we do this demonstrating that our first love is Christ. And that's why we love this country so much. So, I'm wondering again this morning, what is it that's defining you? Could it be that you, throughout this election cycle, have maybe realized that that God may even use this sermon for you to realize that there's been a shift in your mind. There's been a shift in your heart. Again, important issues. But it's not the ultimate thing. And so what we're going to do this morning, what I want you to do, what I've had to do in my own life, is I've had to step back and really pray and repent. Now, what I don't want you to hear me proclaiming is that, that I want to end this sermon on some downtrodden, downbeat. Okay, I'm a sinner. I've let... No. You know the wonderful power of repenting? We get restored. It's, it's wonderful. We get grace. We get mercy. We get restored to fellowship with, with Christ. And so my expectation this morning is that God may rip some of these idols from you so that you can leave here with your hope and your trust and your passion being in the Lord and that, that the God and His kingdom is what is defining you this morning. So we're going to spend some time in silence where you can pray and you can deal with God on your own terms and in your own heart and then I will end us in prayer in one moment. So if you'd bow your heads and just pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word tells us that the gates of hell cannot prevail against Your church. You sent Your Son to come and live and to die and to ransom a people for Himself and that we would be the church. We would be Your people. And that while we are here, that we would be on mission To share your light, your truth, your saving grace to the world. God, while we are here, we are always going to deal with distractions. And God, I believe that I am right to proclaim that I think a distraction in the American church has been this political cycle. God, help us to rise up. Help us to be a people who repent and turn to you and are restored. God, I want to pray that revival would break out in this land. God, I want to be so bold as to pray that, God, you may start a revival here in this church. Where we are drawn back to you as our first love and that we worship you supremely and that we are consciously, constantly blown away with how great you are and that we're amazed at your love for us. And that we're so impassioned about that that we can't keep silent. 
whether we're at the water cooler or whether we're getting our hair cut. God, we love you. God, I thank you for your mercy and grace in our life. And I thank you for your word that is a light guiding us in a dark world on a dark path. Help us to be people of the light who joyfully, with hope that is otherworldly, firmly stand on truth and proclaim your name. It's this name in which we pray. Amen.